Father, I, I thank you so much to be back in the saddle again this week with this fine group of men and women. It's so much fun to come in here and and lead them, and it, it's also very humbling because they're they're smart and they've done their work. And um, I, I'm just so grateful for their hearts and the way that they want to know you more intimately and to grow in their in the faith and in the knowledge and in the wisdom of. Of, of Christ and of you and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we're, we've come to um, Job. Um, who hasn't heard of Job? Even unbelievers have heard of him and, and understand that he suffered so greatly when he didn't deserve it. And this raises a lot of questions in our hearts and in our minds. Uh, I know we, we can struggle with it. We all struggle with suffering, and we especially struggle with, with innocent suffering. And so I pray, Father, as a result of this lesson, that we would come to a greater understanding of what you want us to know. But more than anything, Father, I pray that we would stand in awe of your, your majesty, your, your sovereignty, your divine prerogative, uh, your glory, who you really are. I, I think we, we, we only scratch the surface of who you are. And um, I know for myself I want to know you better because I know... I just believe it with all my heart, and I know that it's true that to know you more intimately and to know you in a, in a powerful way means a life of abundant joy and victory, even though we live in a broken, fallen world where horrible things happen. Father, I pray, as always, that your Holy Spirit would be poured forth this morning, that you would speak through me and through Ryan, that our words would be your words as we lead these men and women. We commit our time to you now in your son's most precious name. Amen. Okay, Job. Who is Job? Hmm? Who is Job and what do you learn about Job? He's a man from Uz. You know, it just, it really does just open. There was a man from the land of Uz. It sounds, you know, when I was working on this, I had just put my granddaughter to, to bed, and we'd read some um, little Bible stories. In fact, she picked the story of David and Goliath, and it, it was just butchered. I'll just let me just tell you, there was a lot in that little children's story that was wrong, but I, I didn't tell her that. I just read her the story. But the way that started out, I thought that could have easily have been her little Bible picture book that I was reading that first line. So he's a man from us. What else do we know about Job? He feared God. What, Scott? He was wealthy. He was very wealthy. He had numerous oxen and sheep and camels. The, the amount of livestock that he, yeah, who has camels? The amount of livestock that he had just showed how wealthy he was. So, yes, he feared God. What else? He was concerned about his children. So the, what, what did he do concerning his children, and what does that show you about this man? He would offer sacrifices for them in case they had sinned against God. You, do, you see what he's doing? He's, he's acting in the role of priest for them. Remember, Job would have lived long before we had the established uh, priesthood and the Old Covenant. So he was not only a godly, devout parent, very concerned for his children, but willing to intervene on their behalf before God, and just really loved his family, a good family man. 
What else did you discern about him? He was blameless and upright. And who even says that about him? God does, doesn't he? God is the one that says he is blameless and he is upright. Anything else about Job? He had a lot of of kids. Yes, he did. More boys than girls. Yes, he did. Yes. How often, did you notice this? In, the, in that verse, you might have to look at it and to pay attention to it, when it says that he would offer these sacrifices for his children. Did you catch that little time phrase? How often did he do this? He did it after every feast, but there was a word I'm thinking of. Um, okay, Job did this continually. What is that telling me about him? This is the habit of his life. The habit of his life, the characteristic of his entire life, not just this point in time in history, is that he is upright and blameless. He, he um, fears God. He turns away from evil. And that means he not only turned away from it, he rejected it. He wasn't going to have anything to do with evil. He is concerned for the spiritual well-being of his children and his family. And he does what he needs to do to intervene on their behalf. So he is a very um, upright, righteous man. So Satan, we get privy to what's going on somewhere out there in the heavenlies, that Satan comes in with the sons of God into the presence of the Lord, and God says, what, what have you been doing? What have you been doing? What does he say? Going to and fro, where? On the earth. On the earth. What's he been doing? Walking up and down. On the earth. You looked at 1 Peter 5, 8, a very, very popular verse. I'm sure you know it by heart. If he's going around to and fro, and what does 1 Peter tell us he was probably doing? Was he just out taking a stroll? Looking for someone to devour because he is likened to a, uh, um, what is it, a roaring lion? Prowls, he prowls. That's an active verb, isn't it? He is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So you get that picture that that's what he was doing. And God knows that's what he's doing because what does God say to him? As he comes before, in this meeting... What does he say to him? Yeah, have you considered my servant Job? So you've been prowling about, looking for somebody to devour. Did you look at Job? Did you look at him? You know, I read, uh, John Piper made the comment. He said, it's like the, Jew, like the thief comes into the jewelry store, and the owner of the jewelry store says, have you looked at my best diamond up here? <laughs> I, and I love that word picture. Have you seen it? Come on in, let's look at this best diamond. Maybe you could try to steal it, and I'll let you try. So he, he's the one, because it's God is the one that brings it up, doesn't he? He's the one that says, well, have you, you've been prowling around looking for somebody. Did you see him? Did you see my, my servant, Job? He's blameless and upright. He fears God, rejects evil. He is a righteous man. And Satan's reply is? Yeah, but. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. But what? You have protected him. Yeah, you've protected him. 
You, you've protected him. Of course he, he is upright and blameless in your sight because you've put such a hedge around him. How could he be anything but that? He, he could not be. And when, when Satan does that, when, when he makes that statement, what is he implying? I'm on your question four if you're following along. What is he implying when he says, ask this question, does Job fear God? For no reason. Did you hear, June? It's implying that it's not out of only love for God, but because God has blessed him with so many material blessings, so much wealth, and the blessings of his family and his children. Yes. Other thoughts? Anybody? Essentially, he's saying, is it love or is it self-serving greed that motivates Job to be righteous and fear God? You've given him everything, but take that away, and surely he will curse you because he's only following you for what you have to give. You know, ultimately, and I wrote this in your, um, in your intro, I don't know if you caught it and underlined it, but ultimately, he's saying, will God's glory be upheld by Job's faith? That is ultimately what he is doing. Now, here's something I want you to see in all this, even at this point, that um, why this is so important, why, some of why God is allowing this, that God's aim in, in his creation and in his redeeming man is to preserve and display his glory. Do you all realize that? You know, why did he even create us as creator, not, not because he needed us, but it was to display forth his glory. And then when man sins, why, why does he step in and provide a plan of redemption? You, mean, you know, all those weeks I've put up here, you know, it's God's story. It's God's redemption story. And why does he have a redemption story? It's to glorify himself and to display forth who he is and all of his, his, his majesty and his righteousness and his holiness, his love, his mercy, all of those characteristics about who he is. It, it is to do that. So in, in this exchange, when you think about it, if he's doing that, the way he does this, the way he, he reflects or mirrors his, his glory is through us. That we have faith, he redeems us, he preserves the people who will love him, who will serve him, who will praise him. And in our doing that, it mirrors forth and displays forth his glory. Do you understand what I'm saying? So when, when, we, when Satan is doing this, he's attacking that. He's not just attacking Job's integrity. He's attacking God's glory when he makes that comment. He doesn't really love you, God, because of who you are, but only for what you have given him. So what do you learn about Satan from this text? Just right here, what do you learn about him in this exchange? Yes. He's wrong. He's going to be proven wrong, isn't he? Mm-hmm. He did. Did anybody kind of question that? Has anybody heard, you know, God cannot be in the presence of sin? What's happened here? 
Mm -hmm. He is in his presence. He does kind of see himself as God's equal. But, but is he? No. Because what else do you see? God's in control. How do we know that? He has limited power, doesn't he? In fact, what power he has, why does he even have it? God allows it. He has to get permission, doesn't he? Do you all see that? He's on a really short leash. He's on a leash, and he can only go as far as God will allow him. It's like those, you know, we have a dog. I don't know who all in here has a dog. And the, the leashes now have that little button on them so you can, you can let it out or you can pull them in and snap it and keep them real close to you. It's kind of along that line. I've got you on a leash and I've got control of the button and you will only go as far as my hand will let you go. What else do you learn about Satan from this exchange? Yes. Right, right. We want the whys, don't we? And we'll talk a little more about that as we develop the story of Joe. Yes. Brenda, did you have something? You look like you were going to say. Yeah. What else do you learn about Satan? He wants to prove God wrong. He wants to prove God wrong. He, he wants to destroy a righteous man, doesn't he? When, you know, he prowl, we know he's a prowler. We know he wants to devour someone. He wants to destroy this righteous man, ultimately to prove God wrong and to prove himself right. Exactly. Did you notice he's not omnipresent? He comes and goes from walking about the earth. He is not omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere at one time. God is the only one who is omnipresent. He is not omnipotent because his power is controlled by God. God is the only one who is omnipotent. He is not aimless. Did you notice that? He's not aimless. He has an aim. And his aim is to prove God wrong, to destroy righteous people, to wreak havoc, to accuse, to, to, destroy, to um, mar God's glory and God's work. So he has an aim. It may sound like he's just aimlessly walking to and fro with nothing to do. He, he knows exactly what he's doing. And he has a goal and a purpose. And he is pursuing it. Yeah. Anything else? Did you have something, Ryan? Okay. Anything else? There's, there's something about, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing. You know, we were talking about false teachers. So I guess in that respect, yes. 
Yes, Brenda? I don't know if he's in disguise or not, but he's not what we have pictured because in about, it says he's very beautiful. Actually, yeah. 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 Did you so hear Brenda? No. She says it's not what we have pictured. You know, when we picture him, we, we picture the, the old caricature of Satan looking evil and the red cape and the pitchfork. But what Brenda said, he's, he's described as very beautiful. He was once a very beautiful angel, so he would have been very attractive. Very much so. Not to God. No. 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 I guess Second Corinthians where I was going with this says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ, and no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Well there you go, there's your answer. And, and I was wondering, yeah. out, is he pretending to be an angel with these angels? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I don't, I don't know if we can push this too far, but it's almost like he's having to give an account. He's got to come present himself to the Lord and give an account, in, in, in a sense, in the fact that he is even there. Because it says he came along with him to present themselves to the Lord. He's accountable to God. He is accountable to God. Yeah. He has an enormous amount of power. Let's not forget that. Because what happens? After God says, okay, okay, Satan, I'll take you up. On this, I've presented this to you. You've made the accusation. I'll, I'll take your wager. And you, you can do anything you want to Job. Just don't touch him physically. And, and what, what happens in just very staccato, just simultaneously? What happens to poor Job? He loses everything. All of his livestock, all of his children... You know, as one messenger comes, another follows, and another follows. Immediately, he loses everything. And did you pay attention in the ways in which he lost? What were there were like two two primary causes for all of this havoc in in Job's life? What what were the two primary causes? Okay, the fire and the strong winds would be one cause. What are those? Kind of natural elements, what, what, what insurance terms, acts of God, natural disasters. What was the other? The Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, who were very evil people. So the second cause is using evil people to come and, and kill by the sword and to destroy. Now, this, this, is a, this is a good question. When you think about it, then who... Well, let's back up. Let's look at let's look at question six first because we're still talking about Satan before we go to seven. Satan's not talked a lot about. There's really no. This is the only dialogue you see between him and God. You see him talking in Genesis three when it refers to the serpent from Genesis three and from um, Zechariah. What what adds to the picture and adds to the characteristics of who Satan is. He's a deceiver and an accuser. Because how, how does he deceive? Did you notice? Okay. <laughs> how did he deceive? He comes to Adam and Eve. He comes to Eve. And he, how, what does he say to her? He offers something tempting, but he also says, did God really say? Did he? Is that really what he said? 
No, she didn't. So, but he uses exaggeration. Yes, he uses exaggeration. He takes God's word and tries to plant, get you to doubt it or add to it or take away from it so that then it no longer is God's word. You notice how he does that? He puts the temptation out there. You know, and, and, he, and he lies. Is that what you said, Nikki? He, li- he deceives. He lies. Because what is the lie he tells Adam and Eve? What does he tell Eve? Well, you won't die. Yeah, God's withholding from you. You know, he doesn't want you to eat this fruit because he knows if you do, you'll be like him. Don't you want to be like him? So, And the lie is you're not going to be like him. You'll be like him in that now you'll know good from evil. You'll know what sin is when you previously didn't. But you're not. That's the lie. You're not going to be like him because you're not God. So he twists God's word. He deceives. He lies. He puts that temptation that hangs that bait like a fish looking at the worm moving around the water. Hangs it there before you so that you'll desire it and you'll want it. And paints the picture that it's something even more than it is. And that, that's what he does. And you see in, in Zechariah, it's very uh, obvious. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him, to make false accusations about him. So these things happen very rapidly to Job, one after the other. Who ultimately is behind them? Okay, okay. I've got Satan and I've got God. God allows Satan to do it; otherwise, Satan would not be able to do it. So ultimately, it's God's power, but He's letting Satan think it's His power. Okay. Did y'all hear her? Ultimately, it's God's power, but He's letting him think that it's Satan's power. But if 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 Satan is behind it, what it, what does that tell you about him? If he is if behind this destruction caused by invading people, the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans, and the fire and the strong wind. His goal isn't to bless people. No, his goal is not to bless people. (laughs) Not at all. Not at all. Yes, sir. The text in at least chapter 1 gives zero credit to Satan. It actually says the fire of God burns the sheep. Okay. And when Satan or when Job is in the first round of afflictions, he says, The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Mm-hmm. And gives zero credit to Satan. And then in chapter two, Satan gives like the boils and the, the pestilence on the skin. And so even even Job writing this kind of waffles back and forth as to who the agent of destruction is. Yeah. And, and when, when Satan does get any credit for actually doing something, it's on God's permission. Absolutely. And Satan doesn't really have any power that hasn't been given to him by God in the first place. So mm-hmm. there we can all become Calvinistic enough to put some of these things in God's hands. Yes. I think we all, I mean, when, when I first wrote that question, then when I went back and did it, I thought, man, that's not so simple an answer. But, but truly, that's exactly what you said. I mean, to me, the implication, yes, it says, the, help me here, Ryan, it says that it's of God, but isn't Satan a lot of it behind some of these things? Wouldn't he have an enormous amount of power to wreak havoc? Satan has an incredible degree of power, but I think every one of us overestimates his power. I, 
100% agree with that. I, um, I actually don't think there's a single person in this room that's ever encountered Satan. He is a created being who is finite in his ability to mm -hmm. be anywhere. He's not omnipresent mm -hmm. like God. Mm -hmm. There's only one omnipresent being in all of creation. Mm -hmm. Well, God's not even part of creation. Satan cannot be in more than one place at once. He's spiritual, mm -hmm. but he can. So I'm just playing the odds. However many billions of people there are on the earth, I don't know that I've ever made it high enough on the pecking order for Satan to bother with me personally. <laughs> I think I kind of get like a sixth rate minion that bothers me. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think he definitely has minions that he sends out that work for him. Of course. Because we have the fallen angels, there are the demons. It is, it's more of a caution against thinking Satan is behind every rock and yes. is behind every yes. evil and is the agent of all destruction. And uh, he's just really not as powerful. Like, the Bible doesn't describe him as being as powerful as we think he is. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So, and there's a number of ways. So everyone's about, we're about, oh, what, two weeks away from everybody getting wound up about how pagan Halloween is. Uh -huh. And it's really, sure, I get some of the sentiment that we don't want to glorify death and revel in evil, and I get all that. Uh -huh. But to say that we are giving Satan footholds is just, I think... Perhaps to some degree true, but let's be careful that we don't overstate this and make him just the evil counterpart of God. Uh -huh. He is so far below God, it's not uh -huh. even close. Uh -huh. I think a lot of times we just treat him as the dark God versus the good God. 100% agree with you, because I have a couple of charismatic, more charismatic friends, and I think they attribute way too much power to Satan. And their focus is often on him and what he's doing and the spiritual warfare that's going on in their lives. And, and one of them is really bad about attributing consequences of her own poor choices and sin to spiritual warfare and Satan attacking. Does that make sense? I mean, those around us can look and go, wow, it's so obvious that this is happening to you because you made this incredibly poor choice. But she will say, oh, look, Satan's attacking the demons are working. There's all this spiritual stuff going on around me, and I've got to stand firm against it. And the rest of us are just kind of shaking our head at her. And she, but she's so Satan is so powerful to her it, that it, and I don't. None of us know how to really get through to her. That God is more powerful. That standing, yes, Satan is is involved in all this, and God has allowed him. But standing behind him, it is God back there, overshadowing anything. That Satan is doing, and I agree with Ryan. This is where we really do, we, we really do become very Calvinistic. We have to believe in God's divine sovereignty. I wrote that in the beginning. This that this let this this story of Job is less about suffering than it is about God's divine sovereignty. It's really more about that than is about suffering. We can learn a lot of things about suffering from from Job and how he handled it, and in his example. Uh, but, but it's more about meeting God face-to-face, -face, and it's more about Him. Do you all see that? Other thoughts, comments? Mm -hmm. Thanks, Ryan. Here, here's something I wrote down. Let me just share this with you. It said, even, even Satan's work cannot step outside the boundaries of God's sovereignty. And while this is what raises a problem in our mind, because I think that's where the question is, why is God allowing Satan to do that? Especially if it's happening to you. It also promises hope. Do you see that? 
It also promises hope because who do I know is ultimately in control of this? The one that I really trust. And that is, is God. You know, the, the other thing that's interesting is people, how do I explain this? This problem of, of what I call innocent suffering, unjust suffering, because Job really is an innocent sufferer. He really, he, he so did not deserve this. He's suffering because he is so devout and so righteous and so blameless. That really becomes more of a problem for people who don't believe in God. Do you all see that? For, for example, I was in a group um, one time, and these things came up, and there was a woman in this group that is, she does not believe in God. And, and she uses things like this as a basis for not believing in God. Because there is this unjustness, this evil, um, these natural disasters, people being killed for no reason. How could there be a God when there's things like this going on? Because if there were a God, he would stop it. He would be a God of love, and he would end all this. So there must not be a God. And I remember being, hearing her talk, and then when it became my turn, I just said, I, I, to me, it proves there is a God. If there is not a God, then it's all so senseless. Why not just end it all right now? Why would, you, why would you live this life? I said, I have to believe there's a God that someday I'm going to meet face-to-face that will explain to me why all these things happen, and then, and then it will make sense because his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways, and he's so much bigger than us. There's no, I can't understand and see what he understands and what he sees. And so that's where it brings the hope. But do you all struggle with this? Does anybody, anybody want to admit that in here? It's better to wrap your head around the fact that God's in control of everything from mm-hmm. Columbine to Las Vegas to the storms mm-hmm. than to think that it's either just random mm-hmm. or that Satan has that much power, that somebody mm-hmm. else, some evil has that much power over everything. But if you take a deep breath and stand back and go, wait a he's in control and mm-hmm. I'm not. Mm-hmm. But is that how things really are? I mean, to me it seems like God created the world. He also created Satan. And when in that creation, things started rolling, things started going. And so, uh, does he does he say today uh, I'm going to have Columbine happen, or today I'm going to have the fires in California happen, or is he just in control of the world? I don't. I don't feel like he's saying. I understand you know what you're saying. saying? Uh huh. Evil is in the world, and because of that, a lot of the suffering is because we live in a broken, fallen world, and people make choices. There is the freedom of choice and free will, so people are allowed to make the choice to take a gun and go shoot people. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't don't feel like he's saying, okay, so today Uh, I'm going to have this guy go to Las Vegas, and and then people are going to turn to me. Mm -hmm. That's not how I Mm -hmm. see it. Mm-hmm. You want to say anything, Ryan? Other thoughts? You don't want to walk in that fire? I'm just, this, this is my feeble attempt. I agree with both of you. 
I, I do think we live in a broken, fallen world and that God has given free will where people can go and, and do very evil things. But ultimately, God is in control. Could he have stopped it? Yes. But for whatever reason, beyond our understanding, he does not. That's a hard concept for a lot of people, even Christians, to get a hold of, and I understand that. And, and if they're in the midst of that kind of suffering, that's not what you tell them. You don't talk about God's sovereignty. You talk about his mercy and his love and his comfort to them. But when I step back from everything I see going on in the world, I don't have any other explanation for it than other than looking at Job and saying, there's something going on up there in the heavenly realms I am not privy to, that I do not understand. But God does, and someday he will reveal it to me, and I'll go, oh, okay, now I get it. Now I get it. You know, we had this discussion at... Was it at Life Group Sunday night when I t talked about the evangelists many years ago? Well, we were newly married back when all the churches had um, revivals. And this evangelist came. I don't even remember his name. But he um, had a son who had committed suicide. And he talked about the pain of that and um, how he even had to step out of the ministry for a while. To, to grieve that and, and question God about, you know, why, why was this allowed to occur? And he said, you know, honestly, he said, it was the most painful thing I've ever gone through, but I so believe in God and his sovereignty that what I know and I believe strongly that when I meet him face to face and he tells me why he allowed that to happen, I will agree with him. And I think that sums it up well. He said, I know I will agree with him. And that's where I place my faith, because I know who my God is. And he is bigger and greater and more omnipotent and more omnipresent and more powerful and more righteous and holy than me. And he sees things I cannot see. He is eternal. He sees the beginning to the end. He is, he is looking out at all of it. You know, what I think about is when we, we've looked at some of these things that have happened, like in the life of Israel, and we say, how could they have done that? Well, it may have been, you know, several hundred years since they had gotten um, the word or, or the law. How, you know, a lot of time. We, we're seeing it compressed. I like what Jim said. When we turn a page, we just turn the page. A hundred years have gone by. We forget that. God's seen everything eternally, everything beyond our scope. So he's seen something we're not seeing. And I, I just put my faith in that and trust that. I put my faith in him and trust that. Other thoughts, comments, questions? Yeah. I think he's always been working fast because he doesn't know when the time is. Yeah, right. You know, it says no one knows. Jesus doesn't even know 
the time that God will say, stand up and go back. It's, it's, it's the end. Only God knows. So he has to work furiously and fast all the time. Mm-hmm. To destroy, to try to destroy God's work, because he knows that his time is, is limited. Right? I would say also that one of the things that strikes me is, well, I hope that when we are no longer seeing through a glass darkly and we see face to face, that maybe we understand things. But I think there is a sort of arrogance that God owes us an explanation yes. for yes. his decisions. Yes. That yes, he, ha- he is all powerful and he can intervene and he could stop some of these things. But we don't see the greater picture. Maybe it's just none of our business. Maybe it's God's business. Yeah. Maybe I, that's all about being sovereign. Uh, exactly. Did y'all hear Teresa? I love what she said. Is it's a it's kind of the mark of arrogance that God needs to give us a reason. Because what happens in Job? We're going forward here. I'm skipping some, some sections here, but what happens? He, if you read through Job, he does question. He does have a lot of grief and bitterness. What does he do when this first happens to him? He worships him, but what else does he do? Yeah, he rose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head. These are all expressions of grief. Of great grief. Of course he's grieving. He doesn't just make this statement in verse 21 about, um, and then again in chapter 2 when he's afflicted with boils. Behold, um, but, now where is it? I'm not in 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's not just a flippant, oh, well, just, you know, praise God for, for this happening to me, he, he grieves greatly. And then we see when we get into chapter 3 that he, he does express a, a, a lot of questioning. Why was I even born? Why didn't I just die? Why wasn't I stillborn or die the moment my mother birthed me? You know, curse the day that I, that I became alive. And if you read through the entire book, he questions God a lot. In fact, he wants God to show up and give him some answers. God does show up. What does God say? Where were you when I did this? When I created the world? Mm -hmm. Where were you? Yeah. Let's just go there and look at some of those verses. Let's turn over to Job chapter 38. Really would... um, be worth your while to read 38 through 42, or put it on your U version while you're driving around and listen to it. Who is that? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where you, were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I make clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? And you can just go through, like 70, he he offers like 70-some questions, one after the other. Could you do this? Could you do this? Where were you when this when this happened, one, one after the other, he does that. If you go down into, um, 
Let's see, 16. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Then in 22, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for the time of trouble and for the day of battle? Look in 39, Do you, in verse 1. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? And then in 39, down, look down 26. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest high? He has, he has control over everything of his creation because he spoke it and created it. It's, he's the creator. So he says, you, let me question you. You've been questioning me, and you want me to give an account and a why for I've, why I've allowed this to happen to you, but I'm going to question you instead. And how does Job respond? He says, I am insignificant. Okay. Look in 40. In, the, in verse 40, the Lord says to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. Then go, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And God says again to him, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like this? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowing of your anger and look on everyone who is proud in a base. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread the wicked where they stand. And he goes on, he continues on with his statements about who he is and in 41 asking more questions of Job. And how does Job end it? Look in 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What did Job realize? What do we learn from Job? Yes, he does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only you would think that, Lynn. <laughs> yeah. Job was left with God and God alone, was he not? His questions were not answered. His whys were not answered. He didn't need an answer to his why. What did he need? He needed God. He needed a revelation of who God was and all of his glory and majesty and divine sovereignty, and that's what God gave him. 
God gave him something better. If, if we wrap our head around his, this, God gave him something better than an answer to the why. He gave him himself. Do you all see that? Right. Mm-hmm. That's what I was thinking. I don't know when we see God. He's going to explain things to us. I think it won't matter anymore. Right. That's right. Mm-hmm. We're going to be wasting our time saying, well, so tell us about Noah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be busy about worshiping and praising him. I think that's good. Yeah. We're not going to be saying, now, who are those Nephilim yeah, that we've been arguing about all these yeah. years? Yeah. Is it Armenianism or Calvinism? Could you explain that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think, I think that's a little bit about what he means if we take it a step further when he says, it, when, when God tells me why I'll understand it, I think you all are on the right path. I think there won't need to be an answer. The answer will be that I see God and I see him in, in a way I never have seen him before and that will answer all my questions and my whys without my having to ask them. Does that make sense? And we'll just innately, we'll just somehow have this understanding of, oh, wow, that's, now I get it. Now now I begin to understand. Except I also like what Jim, I've heard Jim say in the past, we're going to spend eternity trying to figure out who God is. We can't ever plumb the depths of who he is. We'll still be trying to figure that out. Okay. So what do you learn? That last question in your homework to kind of wrap this up a little bit. What do you learn about suffering from Job? Because while the book is primarily about God and God's, God's divine majesty and glory and his divine sovereignty, it's still, it is about suffering. What do you learn? Because we all suffer, do we not? We've all gone through, every person in this room has gone through hardships of some shape or form, some more than others. So what do you learn? It's for God's glory. He will use it. Mm-hmm. I think Job gained a closer walk with him. And you know, Job's never told why. I mean, he's never, not why, but he's never told about this conversation. There's nothing in the text that says he was ever made privy to this conversation. We are. We, we have that bit of the story. He is he's not given that bit of the story. These things happen to him. He doesn't know what's going on in the heavenly realm. What else do you learn? I wrote that you learn that Satan's plans and deeds are ultimately controlled by God who loves us, uh-huh. which makes it not easier to understand, but maybe easier to accept. It doesn't make it easier to understand. I think it does raise a lot of questions, then why does God allow that? But it does give the hope because God is ultimately in control, and we know we can trust him. He knows when to pull that leash in. Other thoughts? I think it's a cautionary tale of, for us on human standpoint, how vitally important it is to understand as much as our little pea brains can 
the characteristics and quality of God. Mm -hmm. Because in the midst of getting struck down, when you get jobed, then you see where your relationship with God is. Clearer, like somebody put a big old floodlight on you. Mm -hmm. And you suddenly know exactly where you are with God and what you think of Him. Yes, you do. And it's mm -hmm. not until you get stuck in that, and it's hard to understand beforehand that I need to stay close to God and understand who He is by studying as much as I can so that when you do get jobed, you can <laughs> respond as best as you can in a right way, knowing who God is. Totally agree with that. You know, I read one author that said we, we can do all we can to prepare to suffer, and I think we need. You know, that's part of the lesson of Job. We've got. I agree with you, Lynn. We've got to know who he is, and, and everybody in here is seeking that, right? That you wouldn't be here for two hours every Tuesday morning doing homework every week if that wasn't the the motivation of your heart to to be prepared for those times. But yet, when it happens, it's still like jumping into a, you know ice water lake. It's shocking. It, it will just it still is shocking when those things happen suddenly. But it is a test. It will be. It's a test, not that you would fail, but that you would pass. God tests us that will pass, not that will fail. Of, of what do you know about Him? Or it's a time. You know, suffering can be uh, a time of refining. It can be a time of discipline. It could be judgment. We know that the Israelites. Uh, suffered a lot when invading armies were allowed to come in and take over because they did not repent. They did not turn back to God when they'd broken the covenant. So it was judgment. But I think with Job, there's sometimes it's just innocent suffering. There's no explanation for it. Absolutely no explanation. And when that happens, you've just got to look to God and say, I don't understand, but I know who you, you've got to know who he is and stand on that bedrock. Because in, if you don't, then you get stuck with being bitter and angry, and then you've got mm -hmm. a whole other layer that you've got to mm -hmm. dig through. Mm -hmm. And that just adds fuel to the fire. Because mm -hmm. if you get mad, I mean, you get mad at God, you know, because we're two-year-olds and kind of are suffering most of the time. But still, if you just sit there in it, wallow in it, it's just going to make it worse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're looking at your circumstances and yourself instead of putting your eyes back on God. Mm -hmm. Job does, we didn't do a whole study of the book, but Job does, God does not um, chastise him for, for questioning, really, or, or for wrestling with him. I think it's okay to ask. I think what you learn through suffering is you begin, your, your wise change, you, your wise are not so much wise anymore, but okay, God, reveal yourself to me, and what is it that I need to learn through this as you grow and as you mature but he doesn't really rebuke him for for having asked why at all he just reveals himself to him i think it also teaches us to look to future glory to remain obedient um, job never cursed god he never lost his faith in god he might have wrestled with it do you know what i'm saying he might have wrestled in his faith but he didn't abandon it never and he never cursed God. He proved, he proved Satan wrong. And God's, his integrity, God's integrity, God's glory was preserved through all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, just in case they did it and didn't realize it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he never did. Not at all. Even though he suffered so greatly. Um, the other thought I had is that God does allow these things if it best serves his purposes. And that's to be able to accept that. That's where you have to know who he is. Because if you don't know who he is, you, it's hard to swallow that pill. It's like, who does he think he is that he would allow this in my life or the life of someone I know or in the lives of these people over here on the other side of the world that are suffering greatly? But if I have a right view of who he is, then I can trust that he's behind it all. And in whatever motivation he has, because he doesn't tell us, it is best serving his purposes, his redemptive plan, his glory. And I can, I can take that check to the bank and cash it. It's a life of faith and trust. Okay. Thoughts, comments, questions? Yes. Mm -hmm. so it's his, it's his. It is his. It is his to do with. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes, Kim. And I, you know, I think too, your suffering is unique to, to you as a person. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can use that to help someone else mm -hmm. who is suffering. Mm -hmm. And Yeah. Well, that's Second Corinthians 1. We comfort others with the comfort that God has given us. Yes, Kim. Mm -hmm. You do? That's why we need each other. That's why we need community. We need community to be reminded when you're suffering and asking why. Let's go back to Job, starting in 38, on who God is. Okay? Anybody else? All right. Let's, wrap, let's call it a morning on that part and take a break. And then Ryan's going to fill in because Jim is in Mexico. Jim, first of all, I'm glad to be back in here. I haven't been here in like a year because uh, of some... Yeah, well, I hope so. And I'm glad that you would say that even if it's not true. Um, <laughs> but I am glad to be back in here. This particular half of this class is one of my favorite things to teach because we get a text and then it's just free reign to go down whatever rabbit hole I want to. And so... Uh, um, I kind of like it. Nancy does all the hard work, and then I get to have all the fun. So what we're talking about this morning is uh, Jim, Jim asked me on Sunday. He, he suckered me into this. He said we were leaving the church after the service, and he, he pulled his car up to the back door, and he runs in to get something. He's going to Mexico. He says, hey, can you do me a favor? I think it's like help him get stuff in the car. I said, yes, of course. He said, are you serious? I said, yes, of course. He says, can you teach on Tuesday? I said, no. Fine. Um, I should have seen it coming. I should have. Do you have a video or somebody said, I'm going to have a guest speaker? And I said, Do we know who it is? And he never responded. Yeah. I think that his head is full of so many wonderful things that come Sunday at 1 o'clock, he remembered. And uh, anyway, so I'm here. I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be back. What we're going to talk about today is, is kind of one of the big themes of Job. Um, and, it's, and it's one that 
when it comes to people who, are, who have a struggle from the outside of the Christian faith with us, they, they struggle with this particular topic, but let's not limit it to just that because this is actually a big, big question that many of us inside the house of faith ask. And uh, so what we're going to be talking about is, you guys have already been kind of dancing around it, so we're, we're actually going to cover a lot of the ground just maybe from a different angle. We're going to talk about theodicy. Theodicy is a very common term in, uh, in the field of apologetics. Um, just to kind of break it down, it is, uh, it's, the, it's basically from a Greek, taking two Greek words and smashing them together, theo or theos and dk or dk. It's basically God and justice smashed together. And the, the concept of a theodicy is to justify, that should be an S, God, which we all know sounds a little blasphemous, but the idea is that we would be able to offer a reasonable defense to protect one of God's primary attributes, which is that he is perfectly just. And so whenever you enter into a discussion and, and, and the idea of a theodicy is on the table, the, it, it's, and again, this sounds moderately blasphemous, but the goal of a theodicy is to defend God's honor and his justice. And this always happens in the context of great injustices or apparent catastrophes. And, and you throw it at the feet of God and you say, how could you let Harvey wreak the havoc that it did? As if God is just malicious and horrible. And I have lots of answers on Harvey in particular. First of all, don't live in a flood zone and then complain when it floods. <laughs> like I do, not get to, I do not get to live comfortably in Stillwater, Oklahoma. And then the one day that will come that a tornado scrapes 6th Street off of the planet. Complain as if, how could this happen? It's like... Do you remember the 57 years that I didn't let it happen? And you're all wound up about, you knew this, okay? So there's a little bit of our own culpability and our own blindness to certain things. But the Odyssey is, is really a, an attempt to justify God. And, and Job is a, one of those wonderful books that gives us a wonderful opportunity to kind of have that conversation. Because you guys have already read it, verse 8 of chapter 1. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then when we see what happens to Job, reasonable questions come up. Like, why does God do this? He does not owe Satan such privilege. Why does he do this? How can this possibly be just? We, we, we have this, you know, it's, it's very, very important. And I'm, I've been enjoying this probably more than any, um, in, than any other context in our Monday night class where we're talking about the Trinity. And it really is incumbent on us to talk well about the Trinity, to keep all of our categories of God kind of out on the table and don't forget one to, to serve the other. But he's just. And he's good. And he's loving. And, and apparently, this is... Not just on the surface. 
We're never told of a reason that Job would deserve these things. Now, our theology of mankind says Job is not perfect, but it does describe him as being a righteous man. And the torment rained down on him is extreme to the extreme. So how is this just? Um, A question I kind of want to throw around the room is, what sorts of emotions does this stir in us? In a room full of people that know God, love God, are comforted by God, put all of our hope in God, when we see Him do something like this, what does that drum up inside of us? Terror. Terror? Does it ever, does it, for anybody else, so just limit yourself to chapter one. Does it at least hinder, to some extent, your ability to trust him? Genevieve says no, of course. I'll be honest, I'll say it. Hmm? I'll be honest, I'll say it. Yeah, it, I at least have to ask, so... Take this and extrapolate, I don't know, six, 7,000 years in the future to your life. And then think of whatever it is you've gone through. And then if you found out this kind of conversation happened in the background. Like. I might be a little bit angry. Yeah. Like, I mean, honestly. I mean, it's, it's easy for me to say I trust God and I do. But if it happened to me, I might would kind of question God, well, who gave you the right to use me as a pawn and not tell me about it? Uh-huh. If I think if we're honest with ourselves. Well, see, I see trusting God a different way in that if this could happen to Job, and I look at my life in comparison to Job, I trust that something much worse could happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> Compared to Job, I really should be taking it on the chin right now. Yeah? No, I mean, Yeah. If he is who he says he is, and, and if we're going to measure by who's righteous, who turns away from who does all, everything right, compared to Job, yeah, I'm dead. Yeah. But, so, but in the in the case of Job, where you see the the whole thing, mm-hmm. Job's gift is that at the end of it, he realizes that his Trusting God isn't based on his circumstances, mm-hmm. um, and he is going to worship no matter what, and that's huge. And so, it would seem that that would be the that's the mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it, it's a healthy way of reading it because most people, when we're engaging in this conversation really don't ever want to make it to chapter 38 before they start to criticize God, right? But you're saying it's, it's important that we read the, the whole story. And even then, I don't know if we limit ourselves to the story of Job. That's a rather small sliver of the overarching narrative of who God is and what he's like and how just he is. But, like, you know, when you say, okay, would I, if, if you if you don't go through that, you always question, would I trust God if that happened? Yeah. But on the other side of it, you know you do. Hmm. 
That's interesting. I think that's you have that. that is, of whatever I'm, happens to you. When you go through something bad and you're on the other side of it or you're in it or whatever, you go, hey, I'm still trusting God instead of wondering if I would. Hmm. It's like, wow, I am trusting God. I'm, I'm still trusting God. And I, so, yeah. I really agree with her. I do too. Because I, and, and Genevieve will relate to this because she's had the same experience as me. We, our house burned 15 years ago. And I always said material possessions don't matter. That was reality. While you have them, they don't matter. Well, we, yeah. I mean, we lost a lot. Not everything, but we lost a lot. Genevieve lost everything. And but you do realize, I mean, I had people say, well, what, what were you thinking about as you were standing in the yard and the flames are engulfing your house? Were you thinking about what was in there and what you wanted out of there? And I said, not at all. Hmm. Not, 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 not till the end when I realized my daughter's prom dress was in there and prom was the next day. I went, oh, no. <laughs> what are we going to do? And the firemen went in and got it. But, um, but you know, but it, the reality, but I always said those things don't matter and they don't. And I remember having that conversation with my kids when we were moved into this little duplex with everybody's leftovers out of their garage. And, and, and Reagan was complaining about it. I said, Reagan, we have each other. We have God and we have each other. That's all that matters. So hmm. what if we're eating off someone's garage table and boxes are our nightstands? We have each other. That stuff is replaceable. Hmm. So it was, a, it was a gift from God. I, I really felt it was a gift that we all came to the realization that it's true. It's a re refinement of your faith yeah. to go well, through struggle. If you look back at it, you can see how God taught you to trust him. And I don't think he could have taught me any other way except mm. to let me go through difficult things and watch him get me through them. And, and, and I would hope that, because I think all of us could agree with that, I would hope that we'd bear such things in mind on the front half of suffering when it first starts to rain down and before we point our finger in God's chest. That we hear, example, this is one of the beautiful aspects of community is... I, I've never gone through great suffering. I did. I, I was very, very sick as a two-year-old. I had spinal meningitis, nearly died, but I was way too young to remember any of that. So I, in my life, I really haven't gone through suffering. Come from a broken home, but I don't know that I would put that on par with things that many of you have, have experienced. That was more difficult than suffering. I don't know why I'd call it suffering. Stupidity inflicted on me by other people's bad decisions. That's what I'll say what it is. But... I would hope that whenever I, you know, uh, a situation that's very close to our family, whenever I'm a mom of seven and my very middle son gets cancer at 24, dies at 25, that I have a community like this that calls me to remember such truths whenever, like, all of my rationale goes out the window and I am steeped in deep, deep grief. I need people to say... I'm not going to minimize what you're going through. We can't minimize what Job went through. You know what I mean? Like, this is not, this is not just suffering. Oh, this is difficult. This morning, my two-year-old threw an absolute fit. I got out of the shower. She's eating breakfast. And I go over there to kiss her good morning. And she just comes unglued. I'm like, what is your problem? And she finally goes over to her mom. Dad touched my jammas. <laughs> I'm going to work. This is ridiculous. <laughs> In her little millennial mind, she had a right to be offended about everything. And so that's not the kind of suffering. That's immaturity. That's different. Like, so there's, there's an immaturity 
that breeds suffering in our own eyes, and we need other people to say, this is silliness, right? This is ridiculous. But there is legitimate suffering. There is long-term illness. There are unexpected deaths. There is the loss of things that we, we thought we would have in, in some secure way. But we don't minimize those things. But as the community, we come through, and I think the probably step number one, sit and cry with people. Step number two, don't be like Job's idiot friends and don't give answers. Just sit and cry with people. And then number three, stick around for the long haul and say, look, I'm going to be with you like through this. Like, I, this, is, this is kind of the, what you see with natural disasters. Um, Harvey demolishes Houston and the surrounding areas and into New Orleans, and then everybody and their dog is jumping in their trucks with sheetrock and lumber to go down there that weekend. And um, they haven't really rebuilt anything, and people are already forgetting about Houston. It's the commitment to the long-haul healing and restoration process that I think sometimes we, we lose sight of. But one of the things that I want us to cover whenever we're talking about a theodicy, about defending the justice of God, is uh, what's, what's the standard of justice we're even calling for? Often I find that um, when someone says that's not right, it is a helpful and worthwhile conversation to have to identify what they mean by right, what their concept of justice is, how they believe things should be and work, and how they believe the world is ordered and should kind of play out. Um, I'm going to be bouncing around a couple of passages that I think can shed some light on Job. So I want to go back to the absolute standard of, of expectation and what this world ought to look like, given no injustices. And so Genesis 1, verses 26, 27, and 28. This is the original covenant. It doesn't have necessarily the covenantal language that you guys are used to. But these are, this is the original agreement between God and man. This was the expectation of what God had for Adam and Eve. He says in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. Calamity was never the point. Disasters were not to be so. From the outset, God's expectation over mankind was that you would be, as image bearers, you would multiply that image. He basically says, make babies. And then your babies will make babies and make more babies and make more babies. It's like fill this. Uh, if you read kind of the language of Genesis 1 and 2, the earth really is a sanctuary. It's a temple of sorts. The garden is specifically the temple. And the, um, the Garden of Eden, which is the very central part of the garden, is the holy of holies where God's presence is in a very special way. And you have these life-giving rivers, the Gihon, the Pishon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates flowing out of the center, out of the presence of God, nourishing the earth. It was a sanctuary. And he says, I want this sanctuary to be filled with people who will worship me, be fruitful and multiply. 
And I want you as image bearers of the Godhead, as the very, um, the very reflection and resemblance and the very character and the authority that I've given you as mankind, I want you to rule this earth. I want you to steward it. I want you to take care of it. I want you to subdue it and control it. That was the goal. That mankind would control the earth. The earth would not rebel against us. We would control it. But of course it doesn't go um, that well. In Genesis 3, there is the fall. Nancy mentioned that briefly. But look at how God describes the calamities that will now come. Genesis 3, I'm going to start in verse 16. He's already rebuked the serpent. And this is what he says to the woman. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. If that is not a description of many of the difficulties and the frustrations that rain down on Job, I don't know what it is. It's like he called his shot in Genesis 3. The truth is, um, it was not supposed to look like it did in Job. But Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And what was their punishment? Their punishment was exile from his presence. And uh, their gross misconduct ushered in a broken world filled with briars and thistles. So you have moral failure that leads to natural evil. And for the rest of human history, we are struggling with both moral depravity and natural depravity. People are violent and evil and wicked and hate one another. And especially true for those of us that live in Oklahoma, it seems like the land is telling us to leave constantly. Earthquakes, tornadoes, I'm sure we'll figure out a way to create monsoons here in Oklahoma soon enough. <laughs> Clay. Why, why did God invent clay? This is ridiculous. Everybody with a house and sheetrock in their house hates clay. It's like, it's like the earth is still trying to kill us. So this moral failure, the aid of the fruit of the tree, ushers in natural evil, and now we will struggle with both for the rest of history, apparently. Moral failure leads to creational brokenness. Both natural and moral evils now happen is God still just, though? Because the failure of Adam and Eve led to their exile, which is an enormous theme in the, in the Old Testament. Exile is the theme of the Old Testament. Return and restoration is the sub-theme. <laughs> Maybe it's 1A and 1B. You have Adam and Eve removed from the garden. Abraham is removed from his homeland and placed somewhere better. But then they just land in Egypt, apparently in exile again. But then they return to the promised land. Then the north is exiled, conquered, 
assimilated into Assyria. Then the south is exiled into Babylon. But then they return. But the truth is they never return to anything much because now they're just under the thumb of Rome. Well, it was the Seleucids and the Ptolemies and the Greeks and then Rome. It's like they really couldn't ever figure out how to get out of this exile business. Isaiah 40 through 55 is a very helpful passage to understand Rome. I know that that sounds strange. Isaiah takes place, he's prophesying far, far, far sorry, to, to understand Job. To, he's prophesying way after Job. But it's a helpful, helpful passage because, and, and, and grant me some leeway with this. In, in Job 1.8, it says, have you considered my servant Job? And then in Isaiah 40 through 55, God gives us a new servant to think about. And if you want to see injustice, Job's story is nothing compared to what happens to the servant of Isaiah 40 through 55. Nothing. The, uh, the question that Isaiah is asking and, and answering in many ways is, you guys remember the Abrahamic covenant? Genesis 12, ratified in Genesis 15. Uh, like, I will bless you and your offspring, and you will have a permanent place, Abraham. And that is one of those interesting covenants that is unconditional. It's unconditional. The Mosaic covenant is entirely conditional. Do this and live. Don't do it, and I'll kill you. It's kind of simple. The Abrahamic covenant is God swears by himself in Genesis 15. He doesn't even need Abraham. He puts him to sleep. And then has this covenantal ceremony. I just, it's one of, those, my, one of my favorite scenes in the Old Testament. And then in Isaiah, by the time Isaiah gets around, everyone's questioning whether or not the Abrahamic covenant is still legit. Are you, are you going to honor that, God? Because really, none of this looks like what you said would happen. And you swore by yourself. And we are losing out to Assyria, and we're about to go into Babylon. So the question is, in, in, in the latter half of Isaiah's prophecies, how can Yahweh still be just when Israel is going into exile? It seems as if he's forgotten his own word. Um, there are a few ever-present realities, however... In, uh, in, in Isaiah. And these, this is where our systematics really helps. Isaiah is, uh, the back half of Isaiah, everything past chapter 40, is obsessed with God as creator. And it's obsessed with God's righteousness. And it testifies much to his faithfulness. So, the questions in Isaiah, are focused around, what about Israel? How will you care for Israel? Are you true? Are you just? And Isaiah just keeps talking about, you remember who kind of spun everything into existence and takes care of it constantly and is altogether perfectly sovereign? Okay. You remember who has not an ounce of unrighteousness in him, is perfectly holy, and do you know who has never ceased to be perfectly faithful? And then they introduce this, this servant. Um, well, actually, I want to go to Isaiah 55 first. 55 is the end of the story. If you 
go to 55 and verse 12. This is the end of kind of this section. And remember what happened in Genesis 3. The ground is cursed. Man is cursed. It can just be evil from this point forward. But Isaiah 55 asks us to look ahead. It says, for you shall go out. This is 55 verse 12. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. It shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Do you see in a very subtle and beautiful and poetic way, the prophet Isaiah undoes Genesis 3. Genesis 3 tells us about the ground being cursed. And you're going to suffer and deal with briars and thistles. And then Isaiah 55 says, yeah, I'm going to replace that with these beautiful, beautiful, life-giving trees. And then that last line, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Isaiah 55 asks us to get outside of our current circumstances and look way, way in the future and trust the creator that can make it happen, the righteous one who only does what is good, and the one who is faithful to the end. Now, Isaiah says this to a people that are going into exile. They are about to take it in the teeth for their disobedience. And Isaiah just says, I need you to know that there's something else beyond this. We're going to go through the trial. We're going to go through the fire. But there is something beyond this. This is a purifying aspect to your faith, as some of you have already described. So is God just? Apparently, he is in the end. Let's see if he is in the meantime. So to understand God's justice in an unjust world, Isaiah says, this is, this is where we must look. We must look towards the future in Isaiah 55. God's justice is a saving a healing, a restorative justice. It is not a justice that never lets anything bad happen. It's a justice that always does what's right in the end. It's a justice that uses pain and suffering to save, to heal, and to restore. And you could ask your nearest physician if there is ever good that comes from intentionally inflicting pain and they'll tell you, yes, you've just described most surgeries. A little pain to do a little good. Or a little pain to do a lot of good. Back to Genesis 1, 26, 28. You don't have to go there, but just know God is constant. Because God remains determined to complete this project through His image-bearing humanity. In Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28, he said, I'm going to do this through you, Adam and Eve. They fail. They really, really just, like, I don't know if it was seven minutes or seven weeks, but they just really <laughs> dropped the ball rather quickly. And God says, all right, Adam, I was going to do it through humanity. I'm going to actually, let's, let's narrow in a little bit more. I'm going to do this through, through a faithful man and his family. Abram, I want you to follow me. Where are we going? Shut up, just follow me. Changes his name to Abraham. Institutes the covenant of circumcision. And now he's going to bless the world through this man's family. 
And then that expands out to, so you go from two people to now a man's family, and it expands out to Israel. Abraham can't do it. Isaac can't do it. Jacob can't do it. Joseph can't do it. Joseph's brothers really can't do it. And then it goes on and on. Moses is not all that good by himself, but at Sinai, God institutes the law and so creates the nation of Israel. He says, I'm going to redeem and restore and enact my sovereign rule in this world through these two people. They can't do it. Through this man's family. They can't do it. I'm going to do it through a nation. They can't do it. So, exile, 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 exile. None of them can do it. And what we need is we need someone to be able to kind of follow through with the plan. That's the suffering servant of Isaiah 40 through 55. Which, of course, we all know is Jesus. Right? This is, this is hindsight. It's 2020. We know this is Jesus. How is he going to do it? Woven into Isaiah 40 through 55 is the figure of the servant, Yahweh's servant, through whom God's justice and salvation will be carried out. Turn to Isaiah 42, the first time we meet the servant. Isaiah 42, I'm going to start in verse 1. The prophet says, Behold, my servant. So this is Isaiah speaking on God's behalf. Whom I uphold. This is Isaiah 42. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick, or many of you, and I love the older translations that say a smoldering wick, he will not quench smoldering flax. He will faithfully bring forth justice. When you ask the question, why is God behaving in an unjust way, you might need to go spend some time with the suffering servant and see how God is going to mete out perfect justice through this person. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out. Notice how Isaiah continues to emphasize who is the sovereign creator and who is righteous and who is faithful. Thus says God, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you because I'm faithful. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. You have God asserting that he is the creator. He is good and he is trustworthy and he is doing something new to meet out perfect justice through this servant. Have you considered my servant Job? And years, years later, God says, I've got another servant for you to consider. I'm not saying Job is a type of Christ. But Job is an early example of God and humanity and the complicated nature of what justice is. And the resounding theme of the Old Testament is just wait. God wins. 
Like God wins. It's justice, 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 creator, ownership, trustworthiness. Israel is this servant. It's fun to go through the servant song. So 42, 49, 53. It's fun to go through these servant songs and ask, is that talking about a person or Israel? Or maybe it's a person who's going to represent Israel. It's really hard to tell the difference. It goes back and forth. Is it the collective or is it one? Or is it one who represents the collective and does what the collective was supposed to do? One of the beautiful things about the gospel is how much it folds in on itself. Remember how I told you Adam and Eve could not um, fulfill their commission, so we went with a family. They couldn't do it, so we went with a nation. They couldn't do it. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. By the way, after the nation, you have, we're going with a king, and he can't do it. And his sons are terrible at it. And then a guy shows up in Palestine, gets baptized, and we see the New Testament play out, and he is the perfect king and the representative of Israel, the only one who keeps the entire law, by the way. And he is, according to Galatians 3 and 4, the descendant of Abraham. And then Paul will say in Romans 6, 7, and 8, he is the second Adam. Adam couldn't do it. Abraham couldn't do it. The nation couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. Jesus can do all of them. King, nation, Abraham, original man. And so we see this justice kind of start to play out over time. What is, um, what is God's plan for evil? Um, it's not to just eradicate it. It's actually to take it on himself. Because if you go through and read Isaiah 42 once more, you'll see that this, this servant who brings justice to the nations, he, he's actually really stepping into the role of Israel. And he's going to take their punishment for them. He's going to endure their exile for them. He's going to be crushed for their iniquities, Isaiah 53. By his stripes, they will be healed. Let's go to Isaiah 53 and just read a little bit of it, or maybe all of it. It's too good not, too good to skip around. You're going to see in Isaiah 53, the, um, the servant here embodies God's righteousness and covenant faithfulness. As we go through this particular, this is the one most of us know the best. It starts up in 52.13, but I'm going to start at 53.1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. If you think Job is a real big victim, maybe. But it's not something that God just does from a remote place and is um, unwilling to take on himself. Because we see God being despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. How does God maintain his justice? He sets himself in the, in the path of his own wrath. And he bears our griefs. He carries our sorrows. He's stricken down. He's smitten. He's afflicted. He's pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And he is wounded such that we are healed. How does he bring about justice? He himself is wounded in our place. Heals us. Isaiah 40 through 55 is an incredible picture of how faithful God is to unfaithful Israel. Israel is incredibly unfaithful. This Sunday, Justin Ebert is going to be preaching out of Isaiah. We were going over his sermon yesterday at our staff meeting, and he asked, um, a number of us to read longer sections of, of Jeremiah. And um, Jeremiah is not kind to the nation of Israel, especially when you're reading out of the ESV. Just whore, whore, whore. Jeremiah pulls no punches as to how unfaithful they have been to their God. And, and Jeremiah testifies to this as well, but Isaiah is an especially beautiful picture of where we have been incredibly unfaithful, absurdly unfaithful. God has never been unfaithful. And he sends the servant to, to suffer and to rain down justice on us, to rain down justice for his people. Um, Yahweh's servant takes on Israel's fate. And um, he rescues Israel from exile. I told you the Old Testament's a story of exile and return. Our God um, exiled himself to rescue us from it. Took Israel's fate on his own shoulders. It's really hard when you read the, like, the scope of God's love and care and tenderness of the Old Testament to come back to Job 1 and start to accuse him of not being just. If anybody is on the side of an injustice being done, it's God himself, not Job. To whom has injustice been done God's a better answer than Job. The servant in Isaiah 40-55 is both Israel and God's emissary to Israel. And he functions both as a king and then he does something that no king would ever do. Sacrifices himself for everybody else. Kings have always been wonderful at sending out people and sacrificing them on behalf of his kingdom. This servant who will take on, like this is a royal, royal person in, in Isaiah. He does what no king would ever do. Walks out on the battlefield by himself to sacrifice himself for the many. So how is he unjust? 
A few final reflections on Job. Job is all about his personal experience with suffering. At best, it is a myopic perspective. It is a single-faceted perspective on suffering. And I know many of you have gone through very difficult things, but I know that many of you have also experienced how healthy it can be to have others help you understand suffering. Your own perspective will always be incomplete. And Job is, is trying to figure out what God is doing. And he has a couple of morons that are trying to help him. And they are all at best incomplete and in many cases wrong. It's important to remember Job is a wonderful example of the limitations of humanity and our perspective on human history. Two, Job um, rightfully seeks consolation and wise counsel. Don't know how much wise counsel he actually finds. But his first instinct is actually not to curse God as his wife would have had it. It's Weep with me. Help me understand what I'm supposed to do. And three, Job refuses to look at his own life and say, I have caused this suffering. You notice he never abandons his position that he is just, that what's happening to him is not right. And actually, like, the book never says that he's wrong on that. I think Nancy pointed it out in the first half. One of you did. There is a place in human history and in our lives for legitimate suffering that happens to people that do not deserve it. And if you try to connect suffering to some sort of deficiency in yourself or some sort of crime that you've committed, and you're trying to see cause and effect, you're just going to drive yourself nuts. It's seldom there. Those are usually, whenever you're doing that, it's probably you're more looking at consequences. But just simple suffering, I don't know that we really need to get too hung up on what causes it. Job is more of a picture of how do you go through it, rather than getting the answer as to why it's happening. But like Isaiah, who emphasizes that God is both creator, righteousness, uh, that he is righteous and that he's altogether faithful, that's really where Job ends up. So as Brenda was pointing out, there's, there's, reading Job and stopping a few chapters in is, is not helpful. But Job tells us the story of God being the creator. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? We've already read some of this. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. <laughs> Dress for action like a man, by the way, is like a, a way of uh, translating the phrase, gird up your loins, which is the ancient way of saying, put your cup on. It's about to get rough. <laughs> you had no idea what kind of hornet's nest you just stepped on. Face me like a man. It's not going to go well for you. And then he just asserts his sovereignty. And he overwhelms Job with the idea that he is the creator. 
Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? You've got to say it with like some deep sarcasm. I think the Lord is very sarcastic. Tell me if you have any understanding. You, who determined its measurements? Surely you know, Job. And of course the answer is, no, I don't. And, and the resounding idea in chapter 38 and into 39 is that, look, Job, there's an incredible difference between you and I. I'm the creator. I'm your sovereign. To say that I wouldn't care about you is foolish. To say that I don't know what I'm doing is blasphemy. To believe that in any way, anything that's happened to you is beyond my control is psychotic. The gap between you and I is far greater than you will ever understand, Job. I often illustrate the gap by you know, me talking to a two-year-old girl at my house. I have, to, I have to condescend to her level. I have to change how I talk. She, cannot, she can't handle the, the totality of who I am. She doesn't, she doesn't speak with the same language that I speak. I have to get down and, and condescend to her. It's not a bad thing. It's just a necessary thing. And, and I often have said, and, and the gap between us and God is far, far greater than that. Way more than between 32-year-old and 2-year-old. The gap is far greater. In reality, that's still too close. The gap between us and God is like me talking to a leaf. It's not even the same species. The leaf cannot comprehend. I get over and I talk to it. At best, it benefits from my carbon dioxide. But it has no idea what I'm saying. Because I am so much greater than that. And that gap is still too small to describe the gap between us and God. And God says, where were you? How dare you question me? Now, there's a place for curiosity. And there's a, a place for uh, an attempt to understand. But to question like this, to accuse in, 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 in an interrogation type way, it really, like, you're just lucky God does not snap your finger off and beat you with it. I mean, it's just, it's arrogance, as Teresa mentioned, to the nth degree. God says, I am the creator. You see this in Isaiah, you see it in Job, you see it constantly, you see it in Colossians 1. Jesus is that creator. So far above all other things. In Job 40, we're reminded of his righteousness. So Job finally shuts his mouth. Verse 3, Then Job answered Yahweh and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job says, I've hit the end of my abilities. And God says, about time. Then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a van. It's like, no, I said I'd shut up. I'm done. I'm not, I don't want to fight you anymore. I will question you and you will make it known to me. God says, it's my turn to ask the questions. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? And of course the answer is, you can't. I am altogether righteous. Not only do I have ownership over all things, not only did I create all things, I am perfectly good. You cannot find me in the wrong. 
have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? He says, be careful who you're talking to. And then if you go to 41 verse 10, you see how faithful he is. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him. Oh, no, this is wrong. 42, verse 10. I'm like, what? Why is that? It doesn't make sense. Okay, 42, verse 10. And Yahweh restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And Yahweh gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that Yahweh had brought upon him. There's another answer as to who brought the evil. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And Yahweh blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima. In the name of the second, Keziah. In the name of the third, Karen, Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. So after 37 chapters of trying to figure out what God's up to, trying to call him to justice, Chapters 38 through the end are, don't forget who made everything. Don't forget who is perfectly good. And don't forget how faithful I am to redeem and restore all things. And we kind of get this played out in one book. And in many ways, that's kind of the sweeping narrative of Scripture. Starts in Genesis 1 and 2. Hey, I created all this stuff. I have a perfect standard of righteousness, which is violated in chapter 3. And then the rest of the book is God's redemption and restoration and then, uh, we don't have time, but I would encourage you to go read, write this down, Romans 8, verses 18 through 39. You see the new covenant perspective on this idea. And then go read Revelation 20, verses 11 through 21, 8. Actually, I'm going to read that part. Sorry, I can't, I can't not read Revelation 20. Look at this justice come raining down. I'll read it quick, I promise. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. This is after the everything has been set correct. From his presence, earth and sky fled, uh, fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Justice will, will take place. All who thumb their nose at the Creator will meet this kind of justice. Now look at what he says in chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice on, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Remember back to the Garden of Eden, that central part that where God dwelt with man before everything fell apart? He's recreating it all. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God just like in the garden. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. In a nutshell, suffering is over. Justice has been finished. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Another way of saying, I am the Creator. The beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Remember those four rivers coming out of Eden that nourish the whole earth? They're back. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, here's the justice. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. When you read the whole of Scripture, I find it rather difficult to come to the conclusion that God is not just. When you read one chapter, it's easier to spin it one direction. Probably in the... The, the greatest advice I can give is to just keep your head down in the text and keep going. And when you get to the end, good, start over. <laughs> Love you guys. Kept you five minutes longer, I think. I don't know. I don't even know what time you're supposed to be done. So this is about right. See you guys. Well, Jim will be back next week. <laughs>